Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. That's going to be our text today. If you are a guest with us, if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you can see an outline. You can follow along as well. In the 17th century, the aristocracy of Great Britain would often hold elaborate hunting expeditions. And I say elaborate, maybe you studied this or you know of this. We're talking, they would invite dozens and dozens of very prestigious guests to come for this hunt. And they would, they would almost move out into the hunt site with these tents that were uh, just elaborate with moving kitchens. Uh, and all kinds of dressing rooms, uh, even libraries. I mean, it was an amazing event. Even some of them would bring in musicians for it. It was an all-day affair. So after they'd had the hunt, they had successfully shot and killed the deer, well, then it was the servant's time. And, of course, this kind of event would require a, quite a number of servants as well. And even though the servants did all of the work, only the rich ate the venison, the meat, the servants weren't given any of that. They would have the meal afterwards, and there would be plenty of eat to drink for the uh, aristocracy, but not the servants. The servants were given what we might say the leftovers, by that the internal organs of the deer. And there was a name for that. It, it's called umbles or numbles, which means the internal organs of an animal. And so they would take these humbles or these umbles and put that with some other fruit and, and things and put it covered in dough and it would come out in a dish that resembled a pie. The servants referred to this special meal as their humble pie. According to wordorigins.org, the phrase changed over the course of time. Eventually it became to refer to someone that would maybe living in a state of humble circumstances and we might say they ate their humble pie. Or maybe there's a situation where a bit of a comeuppance or maybe somebody got what they deserved and they were having a bit of humility. And so we would say they're eating their humble pie. Maybe you know somebody you wouldn't mind giving a slice of humble pie to. Maybe you go to school with them or you work with them. Maybe you're living with somebody that maybe needs to be taken down a notch. You can go ahead and elbow now if you want to. I did read a story I thought was interesting about a husband who thought he was all that. Just so obsessed with himself, thought everybody should be obsessed with him, and the wife just couldn't contain it. As much as she tried to, she just, he just nonstop. One time they were at the state fair, they saw this machine that would uh, kind of tell who you are and guess your weight. And so he went up and put his money into the machine, and the light started blinking, and the scale started going back and forth, and out the bottom popped this card. Well, he grabbed the card and he started reading rather boastfully. You are a born leader with superior intelligence, quick wit, and a charming personality. All of this makes you most attractive to the opposite sex. That's all that man needed to hear. He grabbed the card and he gave it to his wife and said, Ha! Huh, what do you make of that? Well, she took the card and she read it. and Yeah, it did say that. And she turned it over where he had guessed his weight. And she said, Yeah, they got your weight wrong too. In Romans chapter 12, Paul wants us to understand that we are heirs of the grace of God. And because of that, we are to act with grace now. In fact, he opens these practical comments in Romans 12 verse 3. For through the grace given to me, that we are the recipients of grace. And because we are, that we don't deserve this grace, but because we've received this grace, we have a relationship 
with this gracious God. I put it at the top of your outline there, this line, as children of a gracious God, we are to be gracious people. And I'm calling this lesson graceful because what we have here in Romans chapter 12, especially these verses we're going to study today, is what it means to be full of grace because we belong to a gracious God. See, this may be the one difference between just calling yourself a Christian and someone who is completely committed follower of Jesus, and that is being graceful. We've received this grace from God, and we in turn show that to other people. Well, who are those other people that we show it to? Well, that really is what follows in the verses we're going to study this morning. We're going to start in Romans 12, verse 14, the first blank on the outline, and it's a doozy that we show grace to those causing you heartache. Grace to those causing you heartache. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This is one of those verses that's so easy to skip over, observe the Passover, and just pass right over it. There are a lot of verses we love, we memorize. This is not one of them. This is one of those verses we just soon not read. In fact, it's hard to like. We may not be persecuted, but even when we're just wrong, it is so hard to respond with grace. It's our nature to do anything but that. Our culture has a way of thinking that is so against what he's talking about here. Don't get mad, get even. Our world thinks that way. We think that way. We love that scene in a movie when that villain, when that person was out of line, when they get what's coming to them, when somebody tells them off. We love that when somebody gets revenge. But this teaching is not something new. Paul really is just repeating what Jesus had already said. Luke 6, verse 27 and 28. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. A radical departure from basic human nature. In fact, this may be one of the greatest tests of grace. Leadership Magazine shared the story. It appeared in Billy Martin's autobiography. There's a lot of talk. Is it true? It's, uh, is it not? Billy Martin, if you know anything about him, a rather volatile angel, uh, a manager of, of several uh, baseball teams. Most of, him, most of us think about him as managing the Yankees. Well, Mickey Mantle was a good friend of his. They went on a hunting trip to Texas. Uh, Billy knew a, a rancher there, had a lot of land, and invited him to come. And so they made this little trip to Texas to go to this hunting expedition, and, and they went. And so when they, they arrived, they pulled in their car and said, Hey, you know, Billy, you stay in the car. I'm going to run in, just check in, tell them we're here. And so he did that. He walked up, and, and his friend was so glad to see him and glad to offer his property for the hunting and thought that would be great. But he said, hey, i got a favor. I've got a mule that's getting up in age, quite sickly, uh, already deaf, going blind. I just don't have the heart to put her out of her misery. So would you do that for me? He said, I'd be glad to do that. He's like, well, at least he could do, you know, getting to hunt free on his property. But on the way back to the car, he had an idea. He pretended to be really angry. He said, what a jerk that guy is. He invited us down. Now he says we can't hunt. Came all this way for nothing. I'm so mad. I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to his barn and shoot one of his mules. Because if you can't do that, he said, just watch me. And so he drove off to the barn. He got his gun, went inside, bam, shot the mule. When he came back out, he was almost back to the car. 
He saw Mickey coming back to the car and heard two shots as well. What are you doing? He said, well, I thought I'd help you. I shot two of his cows as well. <laughs> True story, or so it says. But we understand that thinking, don't we? Getting even is the way of the sinful nature. Nobody gets the best of me. I'll show them. We may not say that, but we think that. But those who belong to a gracious God are to be graceful people. Followers of Jesus are to do the unthinkable, the unimaginable, for we are to bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. And then in verse 15, he introduces two more situations or individuals or scenarios. Grace to those experiencing happiness or heartache. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. He's basically saying, rejoice with the rejoicing ones. And the way it's written, it's an imperative. You could put an exclamation point at the end of each phrase. That's what he's commanding here. See, following Jesus does not mean that you leave your emotions behind, that there's no place for those at all, whether it's laughter or tears. In fact, just the opposite. Grant Osborne, in his life application commentary, wrote these words. Christianity is neither denying life's hardships nor dulling life's excitements. Our perspective of eternity in Christ frees us to enter into a full variety of living. Both laughter and tears are appropriate before God. And he's right about that. And we see this in, in Jesus as God in the flesh did both. We remember early in his ministry how he went to that wedding and he saved the day. We have no way, of, no right to think that when he showed up at the wedding that he was a killjoy. It wasn't that at all. In fact, he's the one who kept the party going. The sense of humor that Jesus had when he would deal with his critics of his day, with his response. Sometimes it's lost in translation, but the humor is there. Paul says we are to rejoice with the rejoicing ones. And think for a minute the very opposite of that. If you're not rejoicing with those who rejoice, what's the opposite of that? Would it be envying those who rejoice? Maybe avoiding those who rejoice? Maybe competing with those who rejoice? Or maybe resenting those who rejoice? Maybe for you, this is the ultimate test of grace. See, the reality is for some of us, it's easier to weep with those who weep than to celebrate when somebody, when good happens to them, especially if the good is not happening to you. Your coworker gets fired abruptly, no reason. You might shed tears with them, kind of in shock. That same coworker comes in and says, guess what, I'm your new boss. You're not thinking, well, bless the Lord. That's not what you're thinking. You're not rejoicing with them. Rejoicing with those who rejoice may be awkward. It may be difficult, but it's a command. And that means we can do it. Verse 15, it continues, mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. This is not just empty cliches, not just writing a card of sympathy, although a card can be a beginning point of this. This is truly entering into that world of suffering and caring. Sometimes it's just being there without saying the word. This is what Jesus did when he showed up after Lazarus died. We remember this story because he did not say to them, wipe those tears off your face. Where's your faith? He didn't say that at all. Or he didn't say, hey, hang on a minute. I got something to show you, and it's going to be good. 
He didn't say that either. We remember the story of what happened with Lazarus, not just because of the powerful miracle of him being brought back to life, because Jesus mourned with those who mourned. That shortest chapter, Jesus wept. Jesus was not afraid to enter into someone else's suffering. And we should not either. We weep with those who weep. Notice in verse 16, he continues with a couple of more real-life situations. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Live in harmony. And we need grace to do that. Grace to live in harmony. One translation says, be of the same mind toward one another. What he's writing here is not unanimity. What he's writing here is harmony. And he didn't just write this to the Christians in Rome. Paul also wrote this to the church at Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi. Because everybody needed to hear this. Everybody is. And he said, everybody needs to think alike. That's what he's saying here. One author says, Paul was referring to a kind of harmony which proceeds from a common object, common hopes, and a common desire. Same faith, same hope, same desire to glorify God, to be so different, yet united. And we see this. In fact, of late, we see this in a, in a sporting event. Everybody wears the same colors. You, you go to this, this, this stadium, you go to a coliseum, you go to the event, and there's people that you may have nothing in common with, but you're on the same team. You're wearing the same colors. And you hate everybody wearing those other colors. And we understand that kind of unity brings you together. You are united with a passion to win. When Paul says live in harmony or be of the same mind, he's telling us this is a mark of grace, of being gracious people. Again, not uniformity, but unity. Philip Young mentioned this in his lesson Sunday night. If you weren't here last week on Sunday night, Go online and listen to that excellent lesson about unity. But the evidence of that unity is harmony. And the health of this church is displayed when we have harmony as we follow our shepherds, as together we all follow the chief shepherd. That's harmony. Living in harmony says, even though I don't have children, or maybe my children are grown, I still want what's best for the children of this church. We want to make sure our teenagers have the best student ministry. How can I help? Living in harmony means let's help our college students to know that we are their family, that they always have a place to belong. It means we make sure those who are not married feel welcome and accepted and included, that we honor marriages as sacred to do all we can to hold up God's standard. We remember those who are older. She may not be my grandmother, but she's my sister in the Lord. So she's related to me. That's not just unity, that's harmony. Warren Wiersbe wrote a book entitled On Being a Servant of God, and he shared something that I'd never thought of before. He explains that we've never been asked by God to manufacture unity in the church. He said it's already there. We are made one in Christ, but we do have an obligation to maintain the unity that Jesus has already provided, that he died to create. We have that common passion. And that's why we're told, like in Ephesians 4, 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, one of the marks that we belong to a gracious God is that we not have the same personality or that we're just alike, but we have the same purpose. 
See, the whole world can wonder, how do they get along? It's not because we're identical, that we always see things the same way or have the same preferences. Not at all. Instead, we belong to a God of grace. And because of that, we are people of grace. Remember chapter 12 began by calling us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And one of the most significant changes in believers is the way we think about each other. Note verse 16. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. So the first part of the verse is, are you stubborn? This part asks, are you a snob? Are you a snob? Are you willing to associate with the lowly, the people who grew up different than you? Maybe the other side of the track, so another state. They're not from around here. Will the white-collar worker associate with the blue-collar worker? Will the person of one race share a meal with the person of another race? Will the doctor and the mechanic serve together? Will a Ph.D. sit in a Bible class taught by someone who didn't finish college? And by the way, snobbery goes both ways. Will the plumber associate with the attorney? Will the young associate with the old? Paul made it clear, do not be proud. Chuck Swindoll told a humorous story about some neighborhood children. They made a little neighborhood uh, camp, a little, a little clubhouse. And as they had a clubhouse, they came up with three rules for the clubhouse. Number one, nobody act big. Number two, nobody act like you're worth, worthless either. Number three, everybody act medium. Don't you love that? That's Romans 12. That's what he's talking about here. Nobody's a big shot. But nobody's worthless. Everybody has value. The last part of Romans 12, 16. Do not be conceited. Do not be wise in your own estimation. See, first he asks, are you stubborn? Then he asks, are you standoffish? This he's saying, are you stuck on yourself? That's what it means to be conceited. The reality is, and this is where Paul is so realistic here, the reality is the natural man is incurably addicted to himself. You are, I am. What's in it for me? Do I like it? We think about ourselves. And this passage is challenging this because it deals with real life ways to be full of grace and reminding us it's not about you. It's not about you. And people full of grace get that. And when you get that, when you become graceful and you get that, then you have some decisions to make beforehand. Before you're in the heat of the moment, before you're in that situation, you've already decided. That brings me to number four, grace to make some hard decisions. Let me give you an example. In all of us, there is a yearning to get even. So how do you refuse that urge? When something happens to you and you want to act out, lash back, how do you deal with that? You make a decision beforehand. Look at verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Wouldn't it be great if in this command that he at least provided a loophole as much as possible? Or when you are able? But he doesn't do that. In fact, one translation says never pay back evil for evil. There is no loophole here. There are no exceptions. In fact, if you ignore this, you are like slamming the door on growing in grace. The moment you start looking for ways to get back, you have just stopped the whole idea of being a graceful person. See, as followers of Jesus, we want to be more like him. 
more loving, more kind, more graceful, more gentle, more humble. But do we realize that being more like Jesus means also there's going to be some suffering? That he endured the cross. So to be like Jesus, say, yeah, but we don't want the nails. We don't want the ridicule. We don't want the suffering. We don't want the, the, the betrayal. It is never right to get even. And folks, don't think that just because you're a Christian, it comes automatically. Or just because you've been at it a couple of years or maybe a couple of decades that it happens. It doesn't necessarily become easier with age. In fact, this may be one of those times where we utterly fail at this. We're doing so well to follow Jesus and do great, to mature in the Lord, to be graceful people. And then something happens and somebody does something to us and we fail at this. You don't feel like doing the right thing. This is when you need to go back and read Romans chapter 7. He talked about that. I know what's right, but I didn't do what's right. We have those moments. Maybe you heard the story about the young polar bear. His mom swam up with a fish he had just caught. And he said, Mom, am I a true polar bear? He said, well, of course you are. And she swam away, and he went over, and he found his dad. He said, Dad, am I a true polar bear? He said, well, of course you are. I wonder why in the world is he asking that? But he wouldn't stop. Later that night, they're all together. It was on and on. Are you and Mom both polar bears? So that means that I'm 100% polar bear? I am 100% polar bear. One pure, right? Well, finally they had it. And they said, what's all this question about a polar bear? It's driving us crazy. Why do you keep asking? He looked at them, and then he confessed. He said, because I'm freezing. <laughs> he thought, because he was not enjoying, he wasn't feeling it for some reason, he was not a polar bear. And we can be like that too, because we're not feeling, we're thinking, I'm not there. Do not lose heart. Your feeler doesn't always work in your best interest. If you live by your emotions, you'll be easily led astray. Again, early in the chapter, we talked about renewing your minds, and that goes first. You renew your minds and let that renew your emotions. Because our emotions are in as much of a need of a transformation as our minds are. Paul says, choose to be gracious. Even when you don't feel gracious, that may be your ultimate test. Number five, grace to live God's standards. Verse 17 says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, one version says. Literally translated, he's saying, think first. Think beforehand. And Paul lived this way. Once he was dealing with some money that he was handling, and he wrote this, 2 Corinthians 8, 21. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. So here in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul is challenging the believer, before you get there, before you're in that situation, you think ahead of time, what's the right way to think about this, to respond about this? Don't wait till you're in the heat of the moment and let feelings be what dictates your response. But at the same time, realize that we're living in a culture that keeps changing the standard of what's right and wrong. What used to be right and wrong a couple of years ago in this country is not right or wrong anymore. So how do you do that? What is right? What is wrong? You have to decide ahead of time to live by God's standards. By the way, when Paul says to do what is right in the eyes of everybody, 
He's not saying what everybody thinks is right. He's saying you do what is right, whether everybody's looking or not. But especially if others are looking. Number six, grace to seek peace. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I do love the realism of Paul. I imagine you do too. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, live at peace with everyone. And then he gives us two real-life conditions. The first one, it says, if it is possible. Why does he write that? Because it's not always possible. And I so appreciate the fact that he includes that. Jesus admitted up front that he, his truth, would not always bring peace. Sometimes it would bring a sword in fact, sometimes he would teach, and, and it would not create unity. Sometimes it would divide families. And we see that as we go through the Gospels. In fact, you turn over the book of Acts, and you realize that nearly every city where they would go, especially Paul himself, there was some kind of uprising, if not a full-force riot. So there's not a Pollyanna that Jesus is always going to bring about peace. He says, if it is possible, because peace may not be possible. And the second condition, though, he says, as far as it depends on you. And we get that as well, because we know sometimes it's not just up to me. There's that ornery neighbor. There's that co-worker that is just impossible. There's that stubborn relative. And we know that peace is a two-way street. So Paul is saying here, yes, it is a two-way street. But make sure your door is open. You make sure your door is open. And you're not the one holding out a grudge. Then number seven, grace to give it to God. Look at verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, what we know is that judgment of God is coming to all. But we also know that God could judge everybody immediately. The moment you do something, you could have that judgment. But he doesn't do that. In Romans 2, verse 4, Paul calls this God's forbearance. That God is forbearing. He's being patient with us. And God demonstrates unimaginable forbearance by not doing that thing to an unbelieving mankind because they are, they are blaspheming him right and left. But the flip side of that, this world doesn't necessarily see that as forbearance. In fact, they look at that a way to deny God altogether. Where is this God? What about this standard? He sure is quiet. When is he coming? Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, In the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? So this, this amazing, graceful God is forbearing with his creation. And the whole world... Just turns its nose up. Well, what does that have to do with Romans 12, 19? Well, everything according to Paul. Because evidently he thought the connection was significant about treating your enemies with grace. And that one day, one day, grace will end. Paul writes in verse 19, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. That will happen. That prophecy will come true. God will repay. But God's vengeance, by the way, is not a repay like, I'm going to get even, I'm going to get back at you. This is a judicial verdict. God will correctly, accurately judge the world. 
And Paul says that one day they will pay in a way that you and I cannot even imagine. They cannot imagine. But if anything, knowing this, this should provoke in us an attitude, not of revenge, let me get back at them, but knowing that they're going to see a day where the grace ends. It should invoke a feeling of pity for them. That's how we live this out. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. And that relates to the very next one. Number eight, grace to demonstrate specific acts of pity. Look at verse 20, what he says. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. We read this passage, especially that last part, that heaping burning coals, and go, oh, that's good. At least that. That sounds like revenge to me, you know, just a little bit of a twist in there. And several commentaries explain it that way, and for good reason. Because there are not just a few, but numerous accounts where fire or burning coals are used in reference to God's judgment. And so we think about it that way. Okay, that's what's happening here. Well, the first two actions are obviously understood. You know, food, water to your enemies. But that third one is a little harder for us. Is that really what it means? Because it talks about heaping coals of fire on your head. Do we carry coals of fire? And would that be the way we describe getting at somebody? Well, see, it wasn't that the people of Paul's day carried coals of fire on their head, but the ancient Egyptians did. It was a way of showing their regret and their repentance. But how does giving water or giving a drink... Uh, or, or giving uh, food to your enemy, heap fires of coal on their head. Well, let me share this with you. I thought this was interesting. According to Woodrow Kroll, in his work, Romans, Righteousness in Christ, he shared this. Those, in fact, even a generation or two ago, knew the value of hot coals. You never let fire go out in the days gone by unless you wanted the extra work the work extra hard at starting a new fire and then working it until you had a hot bed of coals and you could easily regulate a stove to cook. In Bible times, it was even more important because matches were not available. If an individual did not keep his fire going all the time, he could not keep warm or cook. He would be in a desperate situation. He would have to go to a neighbor for some live coals from their fire. His neighbor would put some in a container and in the typical fashion, the man would balance it on his head and carry those coals back to his home. Add to that, neighbors did not necessarily live right next door. If the kind neighbor was not feeling too friendly, he might give him only a few coals. Paul refers in verse 20 to heaping coals of fire on his head, he writes. In other words, of giving him a large pile to ensure that if the man had to travel any distance at all, he would be more likely to get home with the coals still burning. So Paul is saying, if you feed your enemy, give him water to drink, you'll be like the kind neighbor who gives his desperate friend heaping coals of fire so that he can cook for himself and keep himself warm. Be people full of grace. Be graceful people. We may read that story about the heaping coals of fire on the head and not get it. But I came across this story, and I think this illustrates it well. Watchman Nee, Chinese leader and author, he talked about a, a, chi- a Christian farmer there in China who owned a rice paddy right next to uh, his neighbor who was an atheist communist, had nothing to do with Jesus, no respect for that at all, kind of scorned the whole thought that his neighbor called himself a Christian. 
Well, this Christian farmer would irrigate his rice paddy with this manual, this mechanism that would take water out of the canal and pump it into his rice paddy. And it looked like, the way he would like pedal it, it looked like a stationary bike. Take him a couple of hours. And so he would get on that every morning and, and just irrigate his rice paddy. He had a board that would keep the water in his rice paddy. But after he finished, his atheist neighbor would come in and pull those boards up, and all the water in his rice paddy would drain down into the atheist rice paddy. This happened day after day after day, to the point where he noticed this was happening, and he prayed to God. He was exasperated. He said, Lord, if this keeps up, I'm going to lose all my rice, maybe even my field. I have a family to care for. This isn't right. This is not fair. What shall I do? And in answering his requests, it was as if the Lord was reminding him the truth of Romans chapter 12 about being a person who is full of grace. So he resolved to get up even earlier in the morning. And he pulled up the boards and he started paddling the little machine. And he filled up first his neighbor's rice paddy, put the boards in, and then filled up his own rice paddy. Did this day after day. His atheist neighbor saw this and couldn't understand what was going on. And then, with a series of conversations, came to believe in Jesus. That unthinkable response, that undeserved response, was enough to make him look more closely at this God of grace. Do not miss this. Paul said, in effect, have pity on your enemy. Even though they've wronged you and you don't deserve it and you don't know how you're going to survive, you have pity on your neighbor because one day they're going to stand before a God when there is no more grace. Let that be what motivates you to give it to God. You give it to God. And in the meantime, you give your enemy a drink. You give him food to eat. You do whatever you have to do to show grace. And then number nine, grace to depend daily upon God's power. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, this could be, it's an imperative. It could be translated, do not let evil gain one victory after another over you. But one battle after another, you gain victory over evil. And that word overcome in your Bibles, if you want to circle that and write out the word Nike. You ever heard of that word? Nike. That's where Nike comes from. This Greek word, it means victory. And we think of sports. It's a sports kind of picture there, victory. Paul says it's synonymous with grace here. This is how you win in life. One author said this, Initiating an injury to your enemy causes you to lose. Getting revenge for what your enemy did to you causes you to tie. But giving your enemy grace means you win. Let me close with this. By the way, don't forget the man writing this letter about being full of grace and giving us these real-life situations of what it means to do this, that we serve a gracious God, therefore we should be people of grace. He experienced this grace up close and personal. Even before Jesus appeared to him on the road of Damascus, 
You remember Paul, who at that time was Saul, was there at the stoning of Stephen, consenting to the death, holding their coats. And there's a passage in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, where it talks about Stephen after giving this amazing sermon about Jesus Christ and who he is and losing his life, about to die, says, and falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, with a loud voice, this is not one of those quiet prayers in his mind that nobody heard but God, or even a whisper that only those maybe around him heard. A loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I think Paul heard that. And I wonder how he would look back and tell that story. That this Stephen was praying for him, extending him grace even before he understood who this Jesus was. James Boyce, recorded the great theologian St. Augustine, wrote these words in the 4th century, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Because we serve a gracious God. We are to be gracious people. And if you look in your outline, I put this at the very bottom. Who will be brought to Jesus because of your contagious grace? Who will be brought to Jesus because of your contagious grace? Maybe somebody has showed you that. And today you're ready to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. There's no way you can save yourself. That you believe that he died on the cross for you that you are warning him to wash you clean in baptism and give you his Holy Spirit. We sing a song of invitation to encourage you to do just that. The water is always ready. Or maybe for you, if you wear the name of Jesus, if we need to pray for you to be full of grace, won't you come as we stand and sing the song?